I'm Marty Moscowain. Welcome to The Connection. Michelle Norris has been collecting postcards sent to the Race Card Project responding to this prompt. Race, identity, your thoughts, six words, please send. More than a dozen years and a half a million postcards later, she's created a raw and revealing portrait of America as we grapple with race and identity. Here's a sampling of what people sent in. Be twice as good as everyone. This apartment is no longer available. Lady, I don't want your purse. No one is colorblind. Don't pretend. The cops are following me. Why? Fearful of offending, I say nothing. Must we forget our Confederate ancestors? You're pretty for a dark-skinned girl. White and proud doesn't mean racist. And lastly, I am mom, not the babysitter. Michelle Norris is the founding director of the Race Card Project, and contrary to what we've been led to believe, she believes that Americans do want to talk about race, even though it is uncomfortable. She's included more more postcards along with personal essays and interviews and photos in her new book, Our Hidden Conversations. Michelle Norris has won Peabody, Emmy, and DuPont Columbia Awards for her journalism. She was the co-host of NPR's All Things Considered, is now a columnist for the Washington Post opinions section, and she joins us here in our Philadelphia studios. And Michelle Norris, great to have you with us on The Connection. It's good to be here. It's great to be in Philadelphia. Absolutely. You know, I I mentioned in my introduction that I think Americans have been led to believe, rightly or wrongly, that we don't want to talk about race or we don't know how to talk about race. Why do you think we have underestimated our ability to tackle this difficult topic? Well, I think of the word count that you, you noted. I mean, we have collected, we have archived more than 500,000 of these stories. And uh, not all of them are actually physical postcards now. We now collect cards online through the website. So most people send in their submissions digitally. But I did this because I thought most people would not want to talk about race. I had written a memoir about my family's complex racial legacy. I was trying to invite people into the conversation. And so that those postcards, that prompt you mentioned, was a way to bring people to the table. And I didn't know if they would take the bait. I didn't know Hmm. if they would participate. But clearly, more people than I thought are looking for a space to have, if not the conversation, at least have their say a space where they can say something that they perhaps don't feel like they can say at home or at work or at church or, you know, wherever they gather with people. I mean, these are not completely anonymous, although some of them are. Do you think that gave people the sort of courage to, to, to speak their their truth because they weren't sitting across from somebody? Well, I think that probably makes it easier that you're talking to, you know, someone out in the universe in the ether somewhere. Uh, I, I think modeling had a lot to do with it when they would see – I think the website was important. Once yeah. we created a website and people could see that other people were sharing their stories, we did a series of uh, segments around the Race Car Project back when I was at NPR for Morning Edition. And I think when people could hear it, we've done a lot of work out in the world with college campuses, with mm-hmm. corporations. So also – when you're in a group space, for instance, when we're doing work with the Race Card Project, it's one thing if I walk into a space, Marty, and say, tell me about, tell me about your racial background. Sure. Tell me about sure. race. Yeah, where do you start? Yeah. Right? But there's something anthropological about this, that if I first tell you a story, so if I first share with you some of the stories as you just did, that litany of stories that you read, and then I ask you, tell me about, tell me about race, your thoughts on it, 
your response is going to be very different because we've rendered the pot. It's um, it's it's like uh, uh, Zora Neale Hurston. Sure, we know her as a writer. She was an anthropologist also, and she realized that when she was traveling through the South, it was easier for her to tell a story to get a story. So she would carry the stories from the previous town, and then when she went to the next town in Florida, she would tell the stories that she heard from the previous town, and that made it more likely that people would share their own. I think that is at work here in this archive. I must say the effect of reading the book, which I did, is to read a book of of haiku, of of poetry. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are six words, and there is something about poetry where you have to distill down into the most sort of concise language, what it is that you're trying yeah. to say. Yeah, and that's that was part of the distillation. It's just, you know, if I asked for a sentence, I don't think we would get quite same the same distillation. And if I'd asked for a paragraph, I don't think that we would get this level of participation mm-hmm. because people would say, oh, you're asking to my can't put together yeah. seven sentences for a paragraph. But six words, and then it becomes kind of, I don't know, like a, like a, a challenge, you know, the way that some of us wake up every morning and do Wordle. <laughs> or, you know, right. which I do with my mom every day. And my and for you. two of my cousins, we all yeah. ch- do the same word and see how we all do on it. But, you know, or spelling bee or something. It's a yeah. little bit of a, okay, what if I'm taking it's my puzzle, life? Right? Yeah, and this big subject, how do I take all of that and squeeze it down into just six words? What has been the impact on you reading all these entries and not just what's in the book, but over the last dozen or so years? And I must say, again, from my own perspective, uh, just sort of riding the, the wave of emotion as I was turning the page and reading what people were saying. That's been the impact on me. When I go on the inbox every day, I don't know what I'm going to see. Now, there are some days where I think I have an idea, like after George Floyd was killed, I thought, okay, the inbox is going to be interesting this week. Mm-hmm. When we were fighting about the Muslim ban, I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. But generally, I go on the inbox every day, and it's like, what's what's coming over the transom today? And mm-hmm. I experience all kinds of emotions. Uh, surprise among them, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm still am amazed that people are still sending in these stories. But within that, there are some really important lessons, you know, for me about who, about what I get right or wrong as a storyteller, as a journalist. You know, when people are setting the agenda themselves, they often are talking about very different things than we're talking about in studios or newsrooms. That was a lesson for me. Mm-hmm. That People are talking about race in a very, very intimate way and often with a lot of courage. They're asking questions. A lot of the, if you've noticed, a lot of the entries yeah. come in the form of a question. They're just trying to figure it out. And because we have now, when we accept the forms online, the submissions online, the postcards, I'm doing air quotes, here, yes, the postcards right, right. online. It allows people, you know, when the original postcards were created, they were fairly small. I've got, you know, I think I showed you one at the beginning. It's, mm-hmm. it's not that large. It, you know, you can't, you can't really. Yeah, I'm can't holding up the postcard for those who are not in the room with us. You really can't <laughs> say there's a little, you know, thought bubble there, and there wasn't enough space. So now that we use the online submission form, and we've added these two words, anything else, people can tell us, you know, much more about their story and. Every one of these stories, I mean, you could you could just well, – some, something I do at the website is sometimes I'll go to the website and just play what I call race card roulette. Hmm. And I'll put a word in. See what comes up? Yeah. Truck. Teacup. <laughs> diamond. You know, and just see what kind of stories come up. And 
it's it's a little bit of an exercise for me because I realize every one of these stories is like an entry point into America. And we have cards that come from more than 100 countries. The book is just about cards from America. But every one of these is an opportunity for me to get out into the world to someone I wouldn't have met otherwise, to a community I might not have visited otherwise, and to a history that I might not have understood otherwise. And I hope that it does the same thing for the for the reader. Uh, you mentioned George Floyd and, and obviously, you know, a, a, a murder, a tragedy mm-hmm. that got so much coverage. And what's interesting about this is is how sort of unpolitical it is or unreactive to news events, even though it's probably sort of buried in, in some of these uh, six-word responses. Oh, totally buried. Okay, so in the book, there is a story from Kristen Moorhead. Her six words were, I wish he was a girl. Yeah. I circled and, that. Yeah, and it was, and he, he, I am not surprised because it's, you know, a mother says that, oh, and that's a picture of her right there. Yeah, there we yeah. go. When she sent in those six words, she sent it in with a picture of she and her son. They're on a school bus, and they've just been at a Diwali uh, festivity, a festival or a celebration, and so they are covered with multicolored powdery paint. Yeah. And it's just this he's leaning on her and, and it's just this lovely, lovely little picture. He's eight um, in that picture. He is young when she sends this in. He is the same age as Tamir Rice, the young the kid who was the young man, the, I don't want to say young man, child. Let's be yeah. honest about that. The child who was shot outside of a gazebo in Ohio by a police officer who thought he was brandishing a gun. Right. On the night that the, Which he wasn't. the on that and on the night when that grainy police footage was released, she saw that and saw a young kid who was the same age as her son, and she was just feeling anguish and she was emotional in ways that she was trying to hide from her son, who was just you know around the corner in their house, and so she was muffling you know, her her sobs. And she went to the computer. She had heard the race card project, a race card project segment on NPR and typed in those words, I wish he was a girl. And because we have done this work over such a long period of time, I've been able to talk to her and Mm -hmm. her son is named Che. And now that Che is a young, young man, he's not a kid anymore. And he's getting big and he's got broad shoulders and his, his voice will, he still has kind of a teenage voice, but his voice is going to start to deepen. And I was able to talk to both of them about what that meant. And he listened to his mom tell the story about, you know, I wish she was a girl and why she said it. She didn't want a different kind of child. She just wanted a different kind of world. And she wanted him to be safe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You did interview a number of people uh, for this book, and the interviews are included. And um I'm assuming, I mean, if they sent in a postcard, they clearly were ready and willing to talk. The, and we were able to interview many of the people in the book. Right. And um, I encourage people, you know, I love that people are reading the book. I also encourage people to think about the audiobook as well, because the treat in the audiobook is that many of the people who submitted their stories are reading their own stories. Oh, nice. And so in the the sections of the book, the book is constructed such that I write essays and then in between the essays there are a river of stories from people and there's a river of voices, you know, reading those stories. And then within the research that I did for the chapters, the deeply reported essays, 
Normally when you read a book, you get to a point and you quote someone. Right. And Marty, you'd say, and this person said, and yes. I quote, and then you'd read the quote. In this case, because I recorded everything, I just turned to, and when Mark Quarles talks about, you know, with kid's dad, a lone thug, you actually hear Mark Quarles. When you hear Marin Robinson and Mar- and Ron Bargorder talk about how their life changed after 9-11, you're actually hearing the two of them talk about what it was like as a white woman who's married to a man of um, Iranian heritage and how suddenly they're being pulled over more, they're being pulled aside at the airport for TSA checks. Um, Suddenly they feel like they're being surveilled in some way. It's not me telling that story. They're telling that story in their own voice. It sounds like it would be a wonderful audio play, you know, to Mm -hmm. use all these voices. But let's first take a a very short break. And you're listening to Michelle Norris. And if that voice is familiar, she was co-host of NPR's All Things Considered. And we're talking about her new book. It's called Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. And this is uh, based on uh, six words that Americans and others around the world have sent to the Race Card Project. We're going to talk more after this very short break. Just stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm talking with journalist Michelle Norris, and she asked Americans to summarize their thoughts about race and identity on a postcard with these very simple words, race, your thoughts, six words, please send, and the response has been overwhelming. Today on The Connection, we're talking with Michelle Norris about her new book called Our Hidden Conversations. Let me pick up on something, and you did write a memoir a number of years ago called The Grace of Silence, where you learned that your father had been shot by a white police officer and that your mother worked as an Aunt Jemima, um, complete with headscarf, and this was back in the 19... 19- my, my grandmother. Your grandmother, yeah. sorry. Your grandmother worked as, a, as an Aunt Jemima. This was something that you were not told as, as a child and a, and a young person growing up in your family. Why do you think they didn't want to tell you that? There were a lot of reasons, and some of it has to do with just moving forward, you know, focusing on getting someplace better. Uh, I don't know if any of our listeners ever ran track, but if you did, that track coach's voice is probably still in your head telling you, don't look sideways, don't look backward, just focus on the race and focus on moving forward. And I think that was part of it. For my mother's family, my mother in particular, deciding not to talk about this, you know, having um, a history linked to Aunt Jemima was complicated sure. during the civil rights era. You know, sure. this was not the image of of um, striving that people wanted to put forward. And yet when I found my grandmother's story, I realized that, wow, she was out there. She was portraying a slave woman. Yes, she was earning money. She was doing it in a subversive way. She was supposed to use this slave lingo when she went out to do this, and she wouldn't do it. She would speak the king's English, and she would let people in these small towns where she was doing these pancake demonstrations see something they'd never seen before, which was a very well-spoken African-American woman who was singing gospel songs and, as the kids would say now, representing. (laughs) And my father... um, because it was painful. You know, he didn't want to talk about being shot by a police officer. Sure. Uh, he didn't want to talk about what he fled. You know, I thought he left Alabama behind. I realized he fled. He was part of a group of people. Isabel Wilkerson writes about this in the great 
you know, and, and the warmth of other suns about the Great Migration. There were refugees. They were leaving an area where they were unable to thrive as human beings. And the irony was that he was entering a building where he was going to a night class to learn as much as he could about the Constitution so he could pass a poll tax and, and, a, and a poll test that was required. And at that time, there was a Supreme Court ruling called Smith v. Allwright. It, it ruled that white-only primaries were unconstitutional. So um, black people across the country, particularly returning veterans who had fought for democracy overseas, were trying to make sure that they could vote. And the powers that be in Alabama, which included the police force that was run by Bull Connor at that time, um, were going to make sure – actually, Bull Connor was – I'm not sure. I want to make sure that – I don't. he was not actually running the force. I want to be careful about that. He may have – I want to be careful about that. But Bull Connor was on the force at that time um, and later took over. But they wanted to make sure that they limited the number of black people who would vote yeah. because black people actually outnumbered white people in many of the counties throughout the South. And so that would upset the apple cart. My father was trying to enter that building, and, and a man that I always knew was being very mild-mannered, uh, very almost zen in his outlook. Is your dad? Yeah. 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 Uh, asserted his right to enter the building when a police officer tried to stop him and wound up being wounded superficially. It was not a, a serious wound, but it was a wound. And... He didn't talk about it, and he didn't tell my mother even. I mean, I learned about it from one of his brothers and then found out that all kinds of family members in Alabama knew about it, but they didn't tell the next generation. I have, since doing this work, discovered that my story is not unique, that a lot of people who experience that kind of pain, some of it mm-hmm. racial, some of it just tied to oppression, some of it just tied to the disappointment of having things not go your way. Don't always burden the next generation with that mm-hmm. so that the next generation can move forward unfettered. And, and they I, think of that as, as a burden. Of, yeah. of, 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 and, and I mean, that's a whole other story. And I'm going to make a, 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 a leap here because I was also thinking about America's family secrets, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the book bans that we have today. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, DEI is under fire, attempts to erase and rewrite our history to prevent other people from learning about our history. Mm-hmm. Do you see a sort of, not like your family, because it's a very different story, but nonetheless, this sort of impulse to both sort of embrace our stories, embrace our past, but also to wall them off at the same time? Yeah, I mean, we're in a dyspeptic moment, yeah. you know, when it comes to race and coming to terms with both our reality and our history. And there are, are uh, people who are deeply invested in um, dividing America and shutting down, um, you know, programs that are aimed at creating a, a, a greater opportunity for more Americans. Uh, the assault on diversity has created a, a chill or put a pall over, you know, make, companies are afraid to engage in this because they're afraid of lawsuits. Um, there are some core tenets, though, that I think what it's time to examine. It's time to interrogate. Instead of pulling away, instead of it having a chilling effect, I think it, it, it is a moment to, okay, let's, let's lean into this. What, is this what, what will this require of us as a country? We want to make sure that more people have opportunities. We want to make sure that people are able to run as far as their talents will take them in order to continue to thrive as a country. What will it take in order to do that? And the assault on 
diversity has created uh, – on DEI programs has created, I think, this – this false impression that in order to achieve diversity, that we have to do some sort of backward engineering, which means lowering standards and letting people come in through some sort of side door when they are not fully qualified. And I push back against that because I'm not going to defend every single diversity program. I'm not going to defend every single. I'm not going to defend every single DEI program because right. you know, to be honest, not all of them work. Right. Not okay. all of them are set up to work. You know, some of them are people going through the motions. But I'm also not going to denigrate every single DEI program either because I know that in order for us to continue to thrive as a country, we need to make sure that lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds get lots of different opportunities. And and I, I know that not just because of some sort of core belief. I know that because this work has taken me into – corporate centers. It's taken me into the, the factories. It's taken me into college campuses. It's taken me into municipalities. It's taken me into business centers. And that's something that, that, that people are struggling with is, you know, trying to find talent, trying to make sure that when they do find talent, that if they don't all agree, that they can figure out how to row together. So at a moment where I think it probably behooves us to actually lean in and wrestle with these the stuff that feels kind of icky. And yes, I know people are fatigued by this. I know it's complicated. But we can do hard things. You know, this is America. We can do hard things. And if we decide to figure out how to um, push back against this idea, A, that we have to lower our standards to achieve diversity, that diversity is a bad thing. There's a body of research that shows that when companies are more diverse, they often are more profitable. They yeah, often are more productive. They're certainly more innovative. So there's a case to be made, and I just don't know that enough people are are making the case. I don't want to get lost on a tangent, but I was so interested that you included a section about Germany. I've been to Germany. Mm-hmm. I've been to Auschwitz. Um, and that there are things that we can learn from this country about how they have grappled with their history and the history, of course, of, of the Holocaust, which mm-hmm. is much more recent than, you know, than our civil war, for instance. But nonetheless, you don't go to Auschwitz and have a wedding the way you might at a plantation in the South. Yeah, and you, you also can't, you know, it is, um, it, is, it is not just in politic, but in some cases illegal to, you know, fly a swastika. Yeah. I mean, they just have a, had a very different approach at looking over their shoulder at a very, very difficult history. And they do it in part so that it is a guardrail against a returning evil. They do it in part so that people understand their history. They do it in part as an act of atonement. Um, They do it in part because that was necessary to be embraced again by the wider community. You know, that that it probably would have been harder for Germany to become the economic powerhouse that it eventually became again. and, you know, before it was a unified, but, you know, trying to get, get back into the good graces of the um, sort of economic structure of Europe and the wider world with, without something like that. And they did it in part because there were um, – they had people sort of lording over them in some way after a distinct – you know, after a, a defeat. Yeah. And we have not sort of had that same history. We run away from our history. We are – engaged in um, acts of erasure 
in in struggling with how we we tell this history, and uh, in the notion that we can perhaps outrun or or erase, you know, a history that is difficult. I don't I don't know how you think you you can. I well, mean, you, you can't. You know, you, you can you prevent. Can. I mean, it, it it's already happening. I mean, with book bans, and you can take it out of a, a school curriculum. That does not mean that someone will not be able to have access, you know, to that history. And, you know, again, this is a moment where instead of pulling away from these things, I, it, it, mm-hmm. we might benefit from actually leaning into this and figuring out, okay, if we – bringing people together and figuring out, okay, you understand you don't want this history taught, but let's figure out how we can address this so that we don't completely erase the teaching of a history that – is part of our founding story. It is. It is part of the story of America. It is. It is our origin story. It's how this country started. So how do we completely erase that? Yeah. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. And again, that's uh, Michelle Norris, our guest today on the Connection. She's a founding director of the Race Card Project. And uh, more than a dozen years ago, uh, she began um, leaving postcards for uh, people to discover and write in and send to the Race Card Project. And the the prompt was pretty simple. Race, identity, your thoughts, six words, please send. You can now Google or you can do it online at theracecarproject.com. Interestingly, um, you heard from a lot of white people yeah, <laughs> in this yes, project, I and I, I, I know you were surprised by that. And let me just read a couple of things that the people said. Um, other races resent us white people. Finally noticing my own racial biases. White and proud doesn't mean racist. We the people equals we white people. Oh, you nothing. I'm not responsible. Born into implicit white privilege recovering. Mm -hmm. And there are many others on top of that, but it gives a kind of sense of how people use these six words to to explain a lot of things about their life. That was one of the big surprises for me is when I began collecting stories, because it's called the Race Car Project, because I'm a woman of color, because most conversations about race are usually directed at or run by people of color, specifically black people. I thought that the majority of the submissions would probably come from people of color. In this case, um, that's not what happened. In the majority of the years that we've been doing this, the majority of the submissions have come from white Americans. Mm -hmm. And that was a surprise but a pleasant one because it allowed me to have conversations that I generally would not be able to have. I did not think that I would be embarking on a 14-year odyssey of listening to white Americans talk about race, but the benefit of that is that I have a better understanding of America. Um, and because we have had so many submissions from so many white Americans, we also are able to prevent, present, we're able to present a full spectrum of points of view. So if if we hadn't had this large number, if I hadn't had this large number, it might be a small cohort that perhaps was representing, you know, this vast number of people. And that's always a danger, right? Sure. When, when you know, a few people are sort of representing um, this, you know, big, huge, diverse community. And when we talk about diversity, we're often talking about diversity and like people of color infiltrating a white America, people of color assimilating in a white America. I think about diversity also now within white America, that white America itself is incredibly diverse, politically diverse, racially diverse, you know, that people who are white often have someone in their family who is a person of color, who comes from a different culture. And 
this has been a real education to me, and I hope to people who take the time to read the book or listen to it, to understand the diversity within the at-present majority culture. You talk about a kind of experiment, which is asking people to talk about racism, but without using the word racism or any <laughs> of the synonyms for that word. What were you? What What did you want to get to by by putting down that challenge? There, there is a chapter where I talk about how to define racism because people so often were asking me to define it for them. Yeah. And when people found out that I run something called the Race Car Project, they would often say to me, "So, how do you define racism? Like, what is actually racism?" And for a while, Marty, I would engage. I, in fact, it, it was at, at some point I had a bunch of different definitions in, in the notes section of my phone, so I could like well, oh, this you is how you pull it up. You right? know, this is how you define racism. So, so, so sociologists define it. I would quote Dr. King. I would you know quote James Baldwin. I would mention you know Clint Smith or something. And then I said, you know, why? Are, how do you live in America and not understand? Right. You know what racism is. Now I'm I'm. Not dismissive of the question, but I, but I was starting to realize that what was happening is that people were asking the question to avoid actually participating in the, like, the conversation. They were, you know, why don't you define this and then we don't have to talk about it. I can just listen to you. And I decided to write about this because I had been engaged a couple times in exercises where we were asked to talk about, for instance, poverty without using the word poverty, hmm. without using the word poor, without using the word impoverished, without using anything attendant to, you know, what that, 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 that sort of core word. And then you have to talk about, okay, if I can't say the word poverty, I can't say the word low income, I can't, I have to talk about the conditions of poverty, what it really means, someone who does not have enough to eat, someone who is housing challenged, someone who cannot. So you dig deeper, right? You have to dig deeper. Mm -hmm. And and I thought that that might be interesting to do with racism. If you don't understand racism, okay, let's talk about racism without using racism, bias, prejudice, and then try to figure out what it means. And not to necessarily land at a single definition, because I think if you did that, you would probably find that lots of people have lots of different definitions. And that in itself is useful, right? Because then you realize you understand how wide the gulf is. You know, I wonder whether, and, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but I think our impulse is to, to frame these conversations about black and white. But as we all know, we are a multicultural, multiracial country, and pretty soon whites will not be the majority. We'll all be sort of in this mix together. And I wonder how you think, and we're almost up in a break here, but I wonder how you think that changes the conversation when we get out of this sort of binary conversation about race. Well, it's more interesting when you get out of it because it's more accurate. And we heard from lots of different, you know, people who, who have said and, you know, said clearly, I'm glad I have my say because I feel like I've been sidelined. You know, I'm Asian and no one wants to talk to me about this issue. I'm Latino and, you know, we're, we're the majority in many of the states in this union and yet no one is talking to us about, you know, our, our views. So it's really important to make sure that you, you – you know, I think if you're going to talk about race, that you're actually including lots of people. I, I have benefited from that mm -hmm. in, in the archive. As we reach majority-minority status, you know, it, it, it's, it's creating a sense of vertigo for some people. It's creating a sense of um, loss. loss for some people. And one of the things that I have, another thing that I have learned in this project, <laughs> is that when that is in the in the media in the mainstream media often when people talk about that 
coming number in 2042 or 2047 or whenever demographers say it's, you know, projecting to happen, that it's talked about this whoosh of progress that we're moving toward majority minority status. And I realize that not everybody feels that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's pick up on that after this very short break. And again, Michelle Norris is our guest today on The Connection, founding director of The Race Card Project and author of this book that we're talking about. It's a beautiful, giant book here. It's called Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. Much more after this very short break. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscoane. Again, talking with Michelle Norris about her new book. It's called Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. And we were talking about this, our, our growing diversity mm-hmm. as a country, many more, much more intermarriage, more sort of inter intermingling mm-hmm. of the races. Mm-hmm. And you include a, a couple of, a, a bunch of comments here Um I look black, never felt it. I can pass. My mom can't. They ask me, what are you? And goes on from there. Do you want to read any more? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, you are dirt, so I scrubbed. Oh. You know, from Melody in um, New York City. Mom's racism took my love away. Too sad for words. White mom. Uh, focus on me, not your box. Bigotry stole 30 years mm. from us. Will my children look white enough? I don't know any black people. Would my grandma still love me? Wow. I mean, these are, that's painful to mm-hmm. hear mm-hmm. as people struggle with their identities, right? And how they how they fit into the big scheme of things. But there's also a lot of triumph in the book also. Yeah, there is. Because there are, you know, we talk about the coming America and, and people's, you know, consternation about that. And I... I I listen to people as they talk about that. And, you know, as I say in the book, if you've, if you've paid attention to how minorities have been treated in America, um, you know, America is a great country. I am a proud American. I, you know, write about flying the flag proudly and how I'm grateful to be raised by parents who taught me to love a country that might at some times disappoint, mm-hmm. disappoint me. And I appreciate that. And um, so I, you know, I, I proudly fly the flag, wear the flag, believe in that. Um, And yet in this great country, if you've paid attention to how minorities have been treated, you might reasonably be be concerned about becoming one. And that's where some of that vertigo, you know, comes from. So when people are feeling, you know, a, a sense of displacement, you know, at the same time, at the same time that this, that this is happening, one in five marriages now includes someone who is marrying outside of their race or ethnicity. So while there is this consternation on one hand, there is this like great blending. I mean, that is a fourfold increase since 1967, since Guess Who's Coming to Dinner came out, you know? <laughs> and, and so America is going through a lot of things all at once. And I think that that may be one of the mistakes that we often make about race is we attach a single story or a single idea or a single thread when race is a category as opposed to a single thing. And 
people experience it in lots of different ways and from lots of different perspectives and in lots of different areas. And and often it gets smooshed down into um, a single story. There were a couple of um, uh, six-word comments here that really struck me. One is, lady, I don't want your purse. (laughs) I will not steal your purse. Clutching your purse, locking your doors. And these were from African-American men, largely at white women, you know, seeing them, seeing a black person approaching them and just sort of maybe instinctively pulling their purse yeah. closer Patting to their, their body. Wallet. Yeah. Um and and the the gentleman that said I will not steal your purse he's um he is a logistics engineer of a GE aircraft engines and a captain in the Air National Guard. And he sent in a picture of him and with his uniform very on. Handsome yes, man, right, yes. With his uniform he's like, on. And lady, I don't want your purse. I, I love that card because someone is using humor. Yes. To talk about something that is not so humorous and being uh, a person of color and feeling like you always have to make someone else feel more comfortable yeah. because of your fear. I was in New York recently and – um, and someone gave me a six-word card that I thought was such an interesting retort to that. I'm not intimidating. You are intimidated. Uh, yeah, smart. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, this isn't really about me. You know, it's, 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 about, it's about you. But when, I'm, when I do work in physical spaces where I'm with a group of people, I sometimes will ask an audience – have you ever done this? Have you ever walked, you know, down the aisle at the grocery store, stepped onto an elevator? And you don't even know why you do it. You don't even know why you do it, and you pull your purse a little bit closer. Has that ever happened to you? And I am always um, surprised, presently surprised by people's honesty. Hmm. You know, how many people raise their hand, yeah, I've done that. You know, and, and when you read a book like this, you understand, well, the impact of that is um, – it's it's not just that you offend something that li- you it's not just that you offend someone that lives inside them. You know? Well, and and um, to be to be and I also wrote down something. I don't know any black people. That's yeah. one thing that some a white person said, which tells you that there's there's a world you have no experience with. And and uh, the, at the same time, there are. Other stories where people say because they met someone, right. you know, they see the world differently. Because their kids play with someone, they see the world differently. And this is the importance of, of proximity uh, and the opportunity also in places where people come together and they're all sifted together. This is the, you know, the work that when we're on college campuses or in a factory, mm-hmm. you know, they know that, wait, everybody comes together and they they. They work together, and then they go off, and they get in their cars and their trucks or on their motorbikes, and they all have bumper stickers that suggest that they're going off to different places and leading different worlds. And how do we bring people together in a space and get them to work together when they don't agree with each other or maybe create some sort of tether of trust Mm -hmm. with each other while you've got them in that same space? So you're not trying to indoctrinate anyone. You're not trying to say you all have to think the same way or believe the same thing or vote the same way. But how do you create, you know, and where where are there places that people do that? I mean, I think that there are examples of that. I mean, we're this is a sports town, right? Amen you know? to that. Yes. <laughs> we're this is sort a of serious suffering sports now, time. But yes. Yeah, but I, I said that carefully because at <laughs> the time of the year they're at. But it's, painful. it's true, yeah. though, that people who don't agree with each other on the field – they they fly the flag together. They get together. And you go to that stadium, and that is a stadium full of people who might not agree, mm-hmm. but whoa, they are all 
running in the same direction. The military does that. There are other examples of that. And I wish we would elevate and celebrate Hmm. when that happens to figure out how we can do that more often. You know, I've noticed something. It's not a big thing, um, but I've noticed more commercials, more ads on television Mm -hmm. where you see mixed race families or couples or a parent with a child. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I, it's just, it's been the last couple of years, but I just noticed. It's a big change because do, do you remember what happened when Cheerios did the ad where the little girl heard that Cheerios were heart healthy? She came in and dumped a box of Cheerios on her dad's chest. Oh. She's golden child, golden curls, dad's African-American, darker skin. And then mom comes into the picture and mom is a white woman and they're, uh, you're able to, oh, do the calculus. Okay, right. that's blended family. Cheerios got a lot of blowback on that, and that was not that long ago. And now we've got to the point, as you notice, that we see interracial couples all the time in television. One of the reasons for that is because the business community has figured out what the future of America looks like, and it's more diverse. You know, it's it's much more diverse. And so for some of that might be virtue signaling, you know, might be saying, you know, we're we're trying to um, show that we are – you know, progressive in our thinking. And when I say progressive, not politically progressive, but progressive in imagining a more diverse world. But much of that reflects the research that they've done. They're, they're putting a lot of coin behind that. They're yeah, spending money. This is a lot. This is, that is, there's a lot of research, focus groups. They know what the coming audience is going to look like for the product that they're trying to sell. And for them, the most important color is green. <laughs> and and so that's what they are. They're, those commercials, which may be curious or to some irksome to some, um, some people might look at that and say, right on, whatever you think, yeah. those commercials are projecting. They're saying something about a future that has already arrived. I wanted to read a couple of these only because um, you have a page of them. Um, I'm a white woman, so uh, take this with how, I guess, a grain of salt. You are cute to be dark. She's pretty for a black woman. You're pretty for a dark-skinned girl. You're pretty for a dark-skinned girl. You're pretty for a black girl. No offense, but you're so pretty. You're pretty for a black girl. You're pretty for a black girl. You're pretty for a dark-skinned girl, and it goes on and mm-hmm, on from there. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That I mean, we could do an hour on that. That, is that so was the, when loaded. you read that. That was the desired effect in right. creating this chapter, because we I have received hundreds of cards from women who have some who have heard some version of this. Yeah. You're pretty for most of them are women of color. Most of them are black. Not always. You're pretty for uh, an Asian girl. Um, just enough to make you look pretty. That's an indigenous woman whose mom tells her you got just enough white in you to make you look pretty. And I decided I wanted a whole chapter on this because I wanted people to experience what you just went through and reading it over and over and over and over and over and over again to experience what I see in the inbox, seeing it over and over and over again, And that which means that a lot of people are saying this, a lot of people are hearing this, and they're often hearing it from someone who's very close to them. It's the, so it's not a stranger. It's not a stranger. It's not someone at the mall telling you you're pretty. It's sometimes, you know, maybe someone at school, maybe someone in, you know, at college. Many of these are things that people have heard from the people who raise them, the people who love them, the people who are at their extended family table at a holiday function. And it speaks to the power dynamics behind the notion of beauty 
in America and, and what's at work there and the hierarchy that is created and then enforced. And I wanted to include a lot of their 287 photos in this book, and I wanted this chapter in particular to yeah. include a lot of these pictures because look at these women. They are beautiful. Yes, indeed. They're, you know, without any kind of qualifier. They're just beautiful. And so I wanted, you know, people to understand that beauty and beauty standards are two different things. And beauty standards are what lead to these kinds of comments. Beauty is what is given to all of us if we just choose to see it and recognize it and believe in that and stop creating this this sort of hierarchy where some are beautiful and some are held to a lower rung. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's painful to... to to read that, but but also I can only imagine what it's like to, to hear that, to be a young black girl, yeah. for instance. And, and I include in this chapter um, a page of the definitions of pretty, mm. you know, taken from right. various dictionaries. Right. And, you know, it's if you describe someone as pretty, you mean that they are attractive, synonymous, attractive, appealing, beautiful, sweet, um, pleasant to look at or listen to, synonymous with beautiful, Pleasing by delicacy or grace. Delicacy, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah, you know? <laughs> Having conventionally accepted elements of beauty. Conventionally accepted elements of beauty. So even in the way that we define these things, we are, um, we are confining you know, what, it, what it means to be beautiful. And through those definitions, hmm. actually enforcing these guardrails. I get the feeling that, that you, there's a sense of optimism that you have about... America and maybe even Americans that yeah we're, we're we're struggling mighty mightily with issues of race and racism however people do define it but that that we can we'll we'll sort of muddle through one way or the other but here we are in the middle of an or the start of an election year where people you know withdraw to their camps mm-hmm. and i wonder how you think this conversation can be productive when there seems like there's so much politics and bad politics trying to undo a conversation. Well, lots of things can happen at the same time. And the most production, let me say that again, the most productive conversations about race in America are, are often the ones that you don't get to hear. Mm. Because mm-hmm. we're, we're communicators, we're journalists. What we do is important. But the conversation around race in our newsrooms and studios is very different than the one that's out there in the world. And I think in many cases, in fact, I know from this work, in many cases, the most productive conversations are happening on the edge of a soccer field, you know, where parents on a Saturday morning are um, standing there rooting for their kids who all go to school together, and they are together because they're yoked by their kids. They're happening in church basements. They're happening in places where people are trying to figure out how to solve a problem in their municipality. It's it's happening in spaces, mm-hmm. and it it is it would be more productive if more people were willing to stay within that that space in those conversations, even when things get difficult. To not pull away from the table when things get tough, mm-hmm. and if more people um, would answer those who are invested in our divisions. I mean, we, we are at a moment, I'm not saying this is the most divided moment in America. This is a country that's had a civil war, so let's be clear about that, sure. right? It's, sure, it's, sure. Not, it's not, I'm not saying it's the most divided, but it is a, a very divisive moment in part because 
in part, I'm not saying this is entirely the case, but there, there are people who are really invested in division because they benefit from it. And the thing that I ask people to think about is, do you benefit from that hmm. in the ways that they do? Yeah, that's a good question. We are almost out of time here. Uh, your six words are? Well, when I started this project, they were fooled them on, not done yet. Um, and that speaks to, you know, where I grew up and people didn't assume that I would ever grow up to be a communicator and live behind a microphone. But my six words that I land at now are still more work to be done. We're always talking about America becoming post-racial. We're you know, trying to eliminate the teaching of history. We want to just be done with it. And I understand that racial fatigue is a real thing. But there's more work to be done. And um, it's important work. And the dividends, um, the dividends are magnificent if we're willing to do it. Well, Michelle Norris, thank you very much for writing this book, uh, compiling all these stories, and for joining us today on The Connection as well. It's an honor to be here with you. Thank you so much. And again, her book is titled Our Hidden Conversations, What Americans Really Think About Race and Identity. She is the founding director of the Race Card Project. In fact, you can go to theracecardproject.com and add your six words to this ongoing project. I should add that she has won a Peabody, Emmy, and DuPont Columbia Awards for her journalism. She was the co-host of NPR's All Things Considered, and now she's a columnist for the Washington Post Opinions section. And thank you for joining us on The Connection. Every week we explore different aspects of what makes us human and unique. You can email us at theconnection at whyy.org. Check out our website, whyy.org. Uh, org slash The Connection. You can download a podcast of the show. You can follow us on Instagram. You can find us on uh, Facebook. Al Banks, the engineer f- uh, for today's edition of The Connection. The show was produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray-Bessler. I'm Marty Moscow-Wayne. Thank you so much for joining us.